is that produces good works in us. So we rely totally on you this morning. We come together as a people from many different places, students and, and workers and people that stay at home with kids, those who have had hard weeks and those who have had really good weeks. And we come to you with all of these different things in our life, these different spectrums of life, and we, all of us, we depend on you. We want, as your people, to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. Even as we sang this morning about the amazing grace of Jesus Christ coming to die for us and taking us home, and, and 10,000 years will not be enough time to sing your praises. We will be forever lifting our voices to the praises of the Son of God. And what we see dimly now will be, will be clear in the face of Jesus Christ. So I pray, God, as we open your word, that the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ would be shown to us, to all of us. God, I think particularly of our children here this morning. God, I ask that they would be those who are named among the saints who would be worshiping with us forever. God, you would open their hearts, give them faith and repentance to believe you, to trust in you with all of their hearts. God, we ask for the grace of Jesus Christ to be at work in them even this morning. And for those of us who have trusted in you, will you revive us again, O oh God? This week and our, our many sins and the sins that have been done against us have worn us down. And we're tired and fatigued and we're, it leads to fear. And I ask that you would restore the joy of our salvation this morning. Would you renew us again through the gospel? God, I ask that you would do that not just for us, but we, we ask that you do that for those in our city who are also Christians, that you would renew them by the preaching of your word, that the, the word of Christ would dwell in each of the congregations in, in the church in Corvallis, that you would dwell richly in them, that we all would be rooted and grounded in love. We know we, we're not the only gospel witness here. We thank you for our other gospel partners, and we pray for them. We ask that you would help them to be faithful, to explain and display Christ in all of his beauty through your word this morning. We pray for Subaru Road and for Mike King. God, we, we pray for, especially for our dear friends at Christ Central Anglican. Would you be with them? God, do you promise that you are the shepherd of our souls? We read the song that said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And though Christ Central is wanting for a pastor right now, God, we ask that you would be the shepherd of their dear souls. That you, the king of love, would, would shepherd them, bring them a pastor, God, an under-shepherd that looks to you and leads them in, in righteousness and leads them towards the gospel. We pray that you would give them wisdom in order to, to interview and, and hire a pastor, and that pastor would be godly and holy and look to Christ and Christ alone. So we, we just pray that for them, God. 
We pray also for our world. We think of those who are persecuted, ridiculed, and experience the rage of the nations against them. We ask that you'd give them courage, that they would remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, that they would remember the, the Lord has promised that though he scatters his people, he will gather them back again to himself. And we even see that in Nehemiah. God, that you have scattered your people, but you are remembering your promises. For those who repent and believe the gospel, you will gather them again to yourself. So even as they gather on Sunday morning, the persecuted, you would help them, give them grace, cause their persecution to cease. I pray that as this opposition stands against them, that they would remember the king of glory who sits enthroned above. He is building this church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So those who are persecuted in China, in India, those who are persecuted elsewhere in in Europe for their faith, we pray that the king of love, our shepherd is, would dwell with them and they would have no wants. We pray God, that you would not forsake us. Be with us as we open your word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And I pray, oh God, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer and our king of love. In Jesus' name, amen. March 3rd, 1993, I was a sophomore in high school. I know, go ahead, laugh it up. Some of you weren't even born yet. I get it. I'm one of the oldest people here. I will never forget his, I will never get his speech. His body was riddled with cancer when he gave the famous ESPY speech that launched the Jimmy V Foundation for cancer research. So there he was on that stage from a wheelchair up to the podium, cancerous tumors all over his body. His time was limited. He knew that. He didn't care. He had a message, and that message was meant to inspire people. Don't ever give up. Never give up. Don't ever give up, Jimmy Valvano said. And 20 years later, Stuart Scott, the ESPN announcer, his body also riddled with cancer, received the Jimmy Valvano Perseverance Award. He stood up there and said the same thing, don't give up. Don't ever give up. These men tapped into the fighting spirit of humanity to persevere through their trial of cancer to inspire others to persevere and and fund cancer research so we could end cancer. But I want to ask you a different question. How should a leader and a Christian leader at that respond to hardship and opposition? Jimmy Valvano and Stuart Scott responded with perseverance. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. How should a Christian leader respond to opposition to God's work? Well, God shows us through the story of Nehemiah what a Christian leader should do. Persevere in faith and works. Persevere in faith and works. So whenever a good work of God starts, there is often opposition to it. 
good work of the gospel started in the Reformation, there was automatically opposition to it from the, from, from the, the established church. Do you ever wonder why that is? Why is there opposition to good things here on earth? Why is that? How should we respond to it? But it always happens. And in some senses, we shouldn't be shocked. Even in chapter 3, if you remember back in chapter 3, verse 5, there was opposition to the good work of rebuilding the wall. Nehemiah had set up all of these people, and one after the other, they were next to each other. They were next to each other, and they were on their place on the wall, rebuilding it, except chapter 3, verse 5. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. When you attempt a good work for God, there will be opposition. We must expect that. Perseverance, after all, presupposes that there will be opposition. Friends, this is life in a fallen world, east of Eden. This is life where sin has wrecked. And anyone who lives the Christian life will suffer persecution. Our Lord promised that. The question is, how should we respond to it? Well, in perseverance, in faith, in works. Enduring faith in works. Enduring suffering, knowing that God is building your faith and using your works. So the book of Nehemiah is a story about the God who rebuilds and restores through the good leadership of Nehemiah. But good work is not without opposition. So Nehemiah 4 tells us the story of how one man responded in a God-centered way. The narrative breaks down into three scenes or circumstances, and it corresponds, and it has its also its corresponding response. So, number one, if you're a note taker, number one's ridicule and rage. It's sort of a vignette or a, a scene in the story. Number one is ridicule and rage, verses one through nine. Number the second scene in this story about how a leader responds to opposition is fatigue and fear, ten through fifteen. And the third and last final vignette in the story is number three, uncertainty and unknown. The uncertain and the unknown. So how will we respond when there's opposition to God's work? Opposition in your life. Well, let's see. How does Nehemiah respond? The first scene we see is there is ridicule and rage. Anyone who has ever communicated an unpopular opinion or a strong opinion publicly knows that they will face ridicule and rage from the opposing side. If you haven't experienced it, I challenge you to post an unpopular opinion on social media and see what happens. Twitter is particularly fun. And you will find out the people you thought were your friends or at least indifferent to you will show their true colors. And in Nehemiah 4, the opposition to God's work rears its ugly head. You notice in verses 1 through 3, now when Sinbalat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. This good work of God invoked anger and rage and mocking against God's people. And he said in the presence of his brothers of the army of Samaria, what are these people Jews doing? <laughs> yuck, yuck. Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in the day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and buried ones at that? 
And Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and said, yeah, yeah, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, will it, break, it, will not, will it not break down? Their stone wall. So here he is, bully. Sanballat and Tobiah bullying the opposing side of the governor. Sanballat was the governor of Samaria, which is north in the, in the land of Israel. And it's sort of when uh, Persia uh, took over, they, they combined uh, the Gentile nations with Samaria. And the Jews thought of Samaria as a bunch of, of, of mongrel dogs who were mixed together. And there was opposition between Samaria and Judah. And Sanballat is a governor of Samaria. And his henchmen, Tobiah, they're they are the classic antagonists in the story. They are bullies who threaten with their words and plots of violence. You know the type, right? Johnny Lawrence and Daniel LaRusso, right? You know what I'm talking about. Sanballat, the political enemy of Israel, does not want to see Israelite refugees return to the area. And Samaria was just fine with their cousins being in exile. Thank you very much. Their return angered him, enraged him. And what do evil people do when they're about to lose power? They ridicule and they rage so they can intimidate. So Sanballat puts on a military parade in verses 1 through 3 in front of the workers on the wall, and he speaks to his associates and the army in the earshot of the workers, and he mocks them for their weaknesses. These pathetic Jews, they're trying to rebuild a wall out of rubble. Are they going to sacrifice again this impossibility of their task? He mocks them because of their weakness and for their goals and because of their impossible task, and Sanballat is yucking it up with the army. And encouraging his officials to laugh at these people. It's a form of intimidation. Then his sycophant hetchman, Tobiah, chimes in trying to score cheap laughs. Yeah, if a fox goes up on the wall, it'll crash down, verse 3. They mocked and they scorned them to weaken their resolve and intimidate them. So what should a Christian leader do when they suffer ridicule and rage? You know, in my mind, I, I want Nehemiah to go right back at them, right? Well, it's like a rap battle, right? Just go right back. It's with a mo- your mama joke, you know? If, if your mom went on the wall, then it would break down, right? That, some of that's your first your mama jokes. It's okay. It, you know, they're trying to score cheap laughs, and, and, but this is not what a Christian leader does. It's not how he responds. So how does Nehemiah respond? How does Nehemiah respond in verses 4 and 5? Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunts on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from their sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders Instead of going back at them and mocking them, Nehemiah prays. If verses 4 and 5 are the answer to what a Christian does in response to ridicule and rage, in response to persecution, they should pray. Nehemiah expresses his, expresses his trust in God by going to him in prayer. 
And maybe you've been mocked and persecuted for being a Christian and you're tempted to stay quiet. Don't do it, friends. Go to the Lord in prayer. Prayer, after all, is, is faith in action. It's our, it's our faith lived out. So here is how you can preserve, persevere in faith and works. Pour out your heart to God. This is what a good leader does. He takes his feelings and his people's feelings to the Lord in prayer. And he, he recognizes that this is not just a personal attack on him or the Jews. This is an attack on God himself. He recognizes that it's God's honor that's at stake. Friends, can, can I talk to those who are not Christians in the room this morning? Despising God and his people comes with judgment. God will judge those who ridicule and despise him. It's, it's a sure judgment, it's a final judgment, it's a forever judgment. Ridicule of God and his people is an attack on God himself. So non-Christian, please, don't let your taunts of God be returned on your head. You can receive forgiveness for this. Your despising of God, your ridicule of God and his people, you can receive forgiveness because he has said in the scriptures in Isaiah 53 that about this suffering servant, Jesus, that he was despised and rejected by men. That's you and me. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. What was his response to that despising? Surely, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for your transgressions. He was crushed for your iniquity. The chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. He was despised, so you wouldn't have to be, friend. The only way to receive this forgiveness is by confessing your sin to him and trusting in him alone. But won't you do that today? If you want to talk more about that, I'd love to talk more about that with you. Don't, don't leave today without trusting in him. You don't know what today will bring. You might have to face him as a judge today and be punished forever, but you don't have to be because he was despised for you. Dear Christian brother and sister, this is your great hope. The only way you will persevere in faith and works is trusting in the one who was pierced for your iniquities on the cross. He willingly did it. So, so Nehemiah talks to God because of this is the kind of God he is. He talks to him in prayer, and he goes to him willingly and eagerly. He, he wants the good justice of God to prevail, so, so he asks God to punish the wrongdoer. He wants God's anger to be appeased by turning their taunts back on their head. It is a prayer that God's will be done. 
It's a prayer of justice. So what happens in answer to his prayer? Verse 6. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. For the people worked with all their heart. They had a mind to work. Friends, did prayer immediately solve the problem immediately in front of them? Did the enemies go away? Did they stop their taunts? Was the wall rebuilt just because they prayed? No. But our timelines are never God's timelines. Remember, it took four months before Nehemiah could have a conversation with King Artaxerxes in chapter 1. In verses 7 and 8, we see the enemy's cruel mocking turns to threats and plots against Jerusalem. And in verse 9, what does he do? He not only goes to God in prayer himself, he leads his people to pray to God. So what happens in face of their threats and their taunts? And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. God, please help. His answer, I'm giving you energy to get to work. The answer to how does a leader respond to ridicule and rage is by persevering in faith and works through prayer, through trustful prayer. Trust God and get to work. Faith and works do not always solve our emotional stress, though, or, or make us make up for the fatigue that we feel from fighting the battle. Sometimes fatigue lingers and leads to fear. So what's it like to face intense spiritual opposition over a period of time? What's that like? How does one persevere in the faith and works when they are tired and afraid? Let's look at verses 10 through 15. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we are come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and the open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords and their spears and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Fatigue and fear has set in for these Exiles, and they sing a song of sadness in verse 10. You, you can read it there. It's a song that they were singing among themselves as they worked, somewhat like the Negro slaves in early America as they sung their songs of deliverance. Here's a song of sadness. The strength of those who bear their burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we are not able to rebuild the wall. Maybe that is what you feel in whatever endeavor God has you at. You've been in it for a long time, and fatigue and fear have set in, resulting in despair or extreme sadness. The task seems impossible, and and thinking about it, just thinking about it, wearies you. Not only is there inward opposition, but there's outward opposition, and it confirms what's going on inside of you, you think. The, The reason they're sad and the reason they can't do it is because they've been told they can't rebuild the wall. It's too much. 
They know this because in verse 11, they are told before they know it or see us, we will come in and we're going to strike. They, there's, there is a, there's a plot against the, the Jews that they're going to come in and strike them and kill them. And they hear about it. The Jews hear about it. And not only that, the Jews living around us came and told us again and again, 10 times over, some translations say, wherever you turn, they will attack us. So there's opposition from within, there's opposition from without, and even from their own people. So what does Nehemiah do? What does he do? How's he going to persevere in this? Well, it's wartime. He doesn't go on holiday or take a nap. I know there's time for rest. Some of you may be at that time. You need a rest, you need a vacation, but that's not what this is. This is talking about a wartime mentality. The bombs are dropping. The rubble is all around us. And if we don't rebuild, it's going to get worse and worse. It's wartime. Now's not the time for play. So he gets to work leading the people in verse 13. He, he puts them in the defensive position. And he gives them a, a speech in verse 14 about faith and work. And he tells them, don't be afraid of them. Really, Nehemiah? Look at us. What Simbalat says is true. We are weak. We are trying to build a wall out of rubble. All of those things are true. And he says, don't listen to them. Don't be afraid of them. How? How are we supposed to not be afraid? Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Don't give up. Don't ever give up remembering the Lord. What about the Lord should we remember? Who is great and awesome? It's the Lord who is great. Remember, in chapter 1, Nehemiah had asked the Lord to remember his covenant promise. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 8, he said, Lord, remember your promises. Remember that you promised you would scatter us for our disobedience, but if we repented and turned to you, you would gather us back as your people. And Nehemiah is now telling the people, remember the Lord. He's gathered you. Yeah, there's rubble all around. It doesn't look good. It looks, it, it, it looks pretty menacing, and the enemy might attack any time, but remember the Lord who is great and awe-inspiring. Remember him. Remember him from his word, what he has promised in his word. He has kept. Read the book of Joshua. Every last promise he made, he kept. Remember in your own life. Re remember what God has done for you. We forget too often. Don't, Jared and Jeff and I in our prayer time, we're, we're just giving thanks for what God has done this week. And if we don't give thanks, we forget too often. What has God done for you? What has he brought you through? Remember Remember the Lord. He's great and awesome. Faith is only as good as its object, though, friends. If you have faith in the wrong object, your faith is futile. Placing faith in the right object is crucial. My sons are good athletes. But if it, it came to picking a, a football team, I am probably going to pick NFL players over them. Sorry, guys. I love you. But uh, it, 
if it meant winning. That's just mean. I'm sorry. Yeah, that was mean. I, I would pick LeBron. I would pick them over me. Okay, I would. And my kids are mad at me right now. They're like glaring at me. Faith in the right object, though. I don't want to. I don't have faith in my in my in my sons go on an NFL football team to to win a world championship. I want to have faith in the right object. The good. The good. This is God. He's great and awesome. Faith in the right object matters. Trust God and get to work. You can get to work because you have faith in the right object, faith in works. Friends, our faith alone, our faith and works are not opposed to each other. That's the point of the passage Sean read in the book of James. Faith and works are not opposed to each other. We are saved, Ephesians 2 tells us, by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone. But faith that saves is never alone. It always produces good works. Ephesians also says that you were, you were, made, you were made for good works in Christ Jesus. And one of the greatest ways to fight fear and fatigue is by remembering the Lord who is great and awesome and fighting like crazy to do his work. So what does it look like for you to get to work fighting fatigue and fear, fighting the evil one? Friends, it looks like pushing back against the darkness in the corporate world. Being an honest accountant. Being a graphic designer that reflects the beauty of God in your work. Martin Luther said this about vocation to to a shoemaker, a cobbler. He said, you want to know what it means to be a Christian cobbler? Make a good shoe and sell it for a good price. Being a good school teacher does not give in to the satanic agendas of our day. Being a mom and dad who love, being a neighbor who loves. So Nehemiah in 1a asked God to remember his covenant promise to gather those who have been spread out. God answered that prayer. And now Nehemiah calls to the people, remember your God. He's great and awesome. Look what he has done. Now trust him and get to work. What, what was the result? The result in verse 15, God frustrated their plans and we got back to work. Verse 15, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plans, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. So how do we persevere in faith and works? Remember that God is great and awesome. He's greater than your opposition, and he is greater than your fatigue and fear. He, he remembered his promises to gather his people back to himself. You can trust him. So remember him. Are you tired in your work? Remember him. Are you fatigued in your labors? Remember him. Remember him. Chapter 4 does not wrap up the story with a knight's and neat bow. The wall was unfinished. The stress, the threats were looming. We are uncertain. And there's lots of unknown. So how does a leader respond to what is uncertain and unknown? How do you persevere in faith and works 
when the way's unclear? How do you go forward? What do you do? In verses 16 through 23, we see what Nehemiah does. Often it is the uncertain and the unknown of life that causes the most anxiety. At least it does for me. So how do we deal with it? So their uncertainty, the, the wall's unfinished, the enemy's threats are still looming, they could attack at any time. You know, they're wondering, is it going to happen? When's it going to happen? When will it come? I'd just rather fight them and get it over with than wait for them to come. They're anxious. What does Nehemiah do? From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held spears and shields and bows and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on their work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall from far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. Our God will fight for us. So Nehemiah, once again, he gets to work, and he's a good leader, and he arranges people on the wall, and, and they're at their work, and they're ready to fight with one hand, and they're ready to work with the other hand, and here they are. They're afraid, but he posts officers behind them, and they're there, and they're, they're ready, and it reminds me, it reminds me of uh, my kids have recently been saying this chant at home that the Seahawks used to say, who's got my back? I got your back. I got your back. That's what I imagine happening here. The people on the wall, each one of them posted, just think of your position on the wall and the work God has you to do. And you need someone to have your back. And they're there, they're working, and, and the threat of the enemy is looming, and they're saying, who's got my back? And the people behind them say, I got your back. That, that's what the Christian church is supposed to be, friends. The workers had both sword and tool. They had sword and trowel, tool to do the work and the sword to fight the enemy, but they needed each other. They need people behind them to have their back. The officers or leaders are looking out for them against the schemes of the enemy. We're looking out for one another. It won't do any good for us to mistrust one another. Leaders and, and workers and workers and leaders of mistrusting. No, we have to have each other's back. I imagine them both encouraging them and praying for them, praying for each other. You know what it's like when someone in, in the gym claps for you and calls your name and encourages you? You can always do one more rep, right? When your teammates and your coaches encourage you from the sidelines to dig deep for one more defensive stop, you can do it when they just cheer for you. I just want to encourage you, dear friends in this church, have each other's back and tell each other you have their back. We might disagree. We might get angry with each other. I got your back. I've got you. But their ultimate trust was not in their ability to work or to fight. It was not ultimately in, in each other. It wasn't that they had a great plan and they were working their plan and I got your back, I got your back. Their ultimate trust comes at the end of verse 20. Our God will fight 
for you. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So what was the result? Everything worked out fine? Verse 21, so we labored at the work and half of them held spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. And I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. The end of chapter four, there's still uncertainty. There's still the unknown. But they persevere in the work because of their faith in God. Their response is enduring faith in works in the face of the uncertain. They don't know, but they trust God. When their faith is failing, their leaders come along and say, our God will fight for you. He will fight for you. Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who's great and awesome and fight. Friends, at the end of the day, the wall in Jerusalem and the physical location of Jerusalem itself was temporary. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo you, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through you. The prince of darkness, grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. What's that word? It's a gospel word. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no strength to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. So let goods and kindreds go. Let them go. Your mortal life also. The body they may and will kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. God's kingdom, Jerusalem and the wall was temporary. They would rebuild, but it would be decimated in A.D. 70. And one day it will, it will all be decimated again, but God's everlasting Jerusalem will last forever. His kingdom is forever and ever. So how can you persevere? Don't give up. Don't ever give up, friends. You can do that because Jesus persevered for you perfectly. For those of you who are persecuted, Jesus persevered to the cross, the greatest persecution anyone will ever know, and died there in your place and rose again, seated at the right hand of God on high. For those of you who are tired and afraid, Jesus is your ultimate rest. Jesus, he earned the Sabbath rest for you. One day you will lay down your labors, your tools, your swords, your fighting, your work, and you will rest finally and fully in him. For those of you who are uncertain, Jesus is your certainty. You don't know how it's going to turn out, but he's in control. The wall is going to get built. How do you persevere in faith and works? You look to Jesus alone. This 
quote I end with is, is attributed to John Bunyan. It just reminds us that our only hope is in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he died, he rose again, and he's coming back. It says, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. May we have all of our hope in Jesus, who certainly will help us persevere to the end. Oh God, we pray that you would finish this sermon in our heart. Would you finish, would you use your words by your spirit to change us? In Jesus' name, amen.